There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, I'm Ian Parkinson, and this is the Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. We're in the Ruler offices with managing editor Ian Cleverly and desire editor Stuart Clapp and some special guests. One of the major success stories of the last 20 years in cycling has been the Canadian brand Cervelo, uh, which grew from a tiny operation, the hand-building frames for the triathlon community, to being one of the most lusted-after brands in road cycling. Along the way, they won Grand Tours, Olympic medals, some classics and Ironman triathlons, and for a brief, glorious period, they had their own fondly-remembered pro team, with both men and women riders signed up. Now, Cervelo was founded by Phil White and Gerard Vrooman, and then a new book detailing the remarkable history of the company has been written by Anna DePico, who happens to be Phil White's wife, and I'm delighted to say they're both with us. Uh, welcome to the Ruler Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> we'll um, we'll discuss the book and the extraordinary story of um, Cervelo, and uh, in particular the team, um, uh, in in a little while. Uh, first of all, Ian, uh, you've been on your travels. You've been to Europe with. Uh, Continental, the tyre people. Yeah, Korbach, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, in Germany. Tiny little town, which is basically the tyre factory and, and the, the houses for the, for the people that work there. Huge place, huge place. The last edition we were talking about tubeless tyres and the fact that I've never had any issues with, you know, once you get them set up, it's all easy peasy. I, I, it's actually a slight... Uh, fib there because they do tend to mine i've never set them up right so they do tend to deflate on quite a regular um basis but the the uh the ones that continental do they claim uh by the way if you're listening you haven't sent me the tires right um but they just say they're going to send me some I, you know i just thought i'd get that out of the way now uh you guys you know where are the tires they claim you can pump them up with a track pump and they will seal um so i look forward to trying those but as i said they've not arrived um, but that wasn't the thing that really blew my mind. The thing that really blew my mind is they are making tyres out of dandelions. How's that work? What? Yes, dandelions. This is the new, the new, the new thing that they're experimenting with and um, starting to go into production. They've actually got a, a, a test tyre out there now. Um, is it yellow? So, no, no, disappointing. They're Russian dandelions. Not the, it's not the flower, it's the root. 
um, that you can turn into rubber. Basically produces the same uh, sort of sap. Sap, thank you. You weren't being abusive, are you? Um, it produces the same stuff uh, that rubber does, but obviously you can grow dandelions uh, near to where the factories are. So they're, they're, they're starting to put fields of uh, dandelions in here, there and everywhere, wherever their factories are. Uh, they don't have to rely on the rubber coming from the rubber belt of the world, which is basically sort of either side of the equator, isn't it? And um, and then you have to transport that thousands of miles and uh, rubber trees, I think it's six or seven years before you can start tapping them for rubber as well. A whole new thing that's coming in. So look forward to that. Do they smell different? Do you know what? I didn't actually sniff them. Sorry. Failure, isn't it? Sorry. Smell of rubber. <laughs> Failed. <laughs> the other thing about Continental is uh, I remember they did those brilliant adverts a few years ago uh, which featured the women from their production line who were all pretty... Strapping. Strapping yes. um, uh, ladies who worked uh, the yes. production line and built the tyres. Did you meet any of them? Absolutely, and absolutely true. The only time I'd been to visit a tyre factory before was when I went to Hutchinson years ago and, and I concluded the piece by saying... If you wonder why your tyres are costing £50 a pop, come and have a look at them being produced and see how many people uh, are involved in making that tyre. It's a really hands-on production. You know, it's not. I, I, I had visions of there being lines of machines and it would eventually turn up as this, you know, perfectly formed tyre and that would be it. But there's a lot of people involved, in, you know, including stitching and the whole, the whole gamut. It's a very... Uh, labour-intensive process and it, of course I went into the the uh, ultra special room where they produce the tubulars and that is a very hands-on process so yeah there's a reason why they ain't cheap and the tyres do all say I think don't they handmade still on the side they, they are indeed in Germany, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stuart we'll um, talk later on uh, with you about um, your latest activities but um, last time we were on the podcast you were talking about putting cyclists on horses weren't you uh, how did that go no, they didn't. Mm. Um, we sometimes there's there's a difference between idea and then actually making it happen. Cyclists aren't renowned for riding horses, so I had this model that I got in. Um, very good bike rider, but he's never ridden a horse before. In fact, we found out that he's terrified of horses as well, which which made the for the the funniest pictures I've seen so far from a desire shoot. So <clears throat> I thought with cycling kit it looks a little bit like jockeys and I thought wow we could shoot something along those lines and have the cyclists on horseback but to put a cyclist someone who's never ridden a horse to do it safely you need some old nag and that's not going to look very good photographically so I thought no we want racehorses so um we went to Newmarket to one of King Charles II's palaces. It was James I after that. I did have a bit of a history tour, but I was glazing over because I was uh, looking at the horses. And um, I think before, like, he built it so he could see his stables from his palace, right? So he could look out and, you know, they don't have Netflix or... So, um, yeah, we went there, but they did have a horse race simulator. So we've put, we put the model on that as well, which was, was one of the funniest things I've seen up until the point that he got bitten by a racehorse. Uh, that was a very expensive racehorse as well. Apparently. Very. Um, they call it covering, uh, which is. Ah, uh, I, yeah. Sorry, I, I got a button in here. That was big orange. That was big orange. Yeah. yeah, he's a gelding. What? 
Oh. He's a gelding. So there's he, no he, covering going on. He will not be doing any covering. So he's he's a he's, he's a girl. Oh snipped. no, a gelding. He's had his oh he's tubes tied. Jaffa. <laughs> <laughs> so so no, he doesn't he doesn't do that. But they have other horses there that, that, that do. Ah oh, right, and they get paid an inordinate amount of money. But he did win in in his uh, brief and fabulous fabulously successful racing career one point two five million pounds. Of yeah. prize money they, so yeah these, these horses are worth worth a fortune and um yeah that's why they wouldn't let us put put anyone on it and uh but it was yeah it's funny day but that's not in the issue that's out now when you have this you'll have the one that we shot at wadston manor uh with with uh one of rothschild's places i think we covered this before yeah. he has he's got a, he had a palace just for his weekend parties those walls could talk uh but yeah um so yeah this this one will be out for um it'll it'll be the issue that comes out in july so uh yeah it was good cool it's good fun let's uh talk to our special guest then let's go back uh then to the mid 90s when phil white and uh, gerard vrooman met at mcgill university in montreal and decided that they could make a time trial bike that would be better than anything else on the market and the rest is, well, uh, the rest is a fascinating story, actually. Uh, Phil White is with us, along with Anna DePico, who's written a book called To Make Riders Faster. And To Make Riders Faster was essentially the mission statement of the company that uh, uh, Phil and Gerard went on to uh, found, wasn't it? Yeah, we went through two or three mission statements, you know, in the 15 years before we, we sold. But that was the one that resonated, To Make Riders Faster. And you would ask You'd ask riders or ask employees years later, you know, what's the mission of the company? And they would always say to make riders faster. And it was like, okay, you're paraphrasing kind of maybe what the official one was, but if it resonates with you and they got it and they understood that culture, that was the most important thing. And that was what we existed for. So I think it was, it was, a, it was a great summary of it. We should have just left it that way rather than trying to make it more complex and more inclusive. And one of the things that you definitely sort of set out to do was to disrupt the bike industry, wasn't it? To 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 change uh, no, things we, from the inside. Know, actually, we didn't set out to really disrupt it. It was like, we just said we can make a faster bike. And uh, it was pretty clear the science was pretty much out there. I mean, the Americans had been making aero bikes since like 84 for those Olympics. And there'd been aero bikes at several points, but they'd never really... They'd never been really good bikes. They were pretty flexy or, or heavy or both. And, uh, and we said, well, you know, there's a little bit of engineering here. We can make a bike that's aero and stiff and comfortable. And um, so we just, and it was faster. Everyone knew, everyone knew it was faster. So we just said, well, let's just make something faster. It never really occurred to us that we were really being that disruptive. But I guess if you look back on the change we've seen from, you know, when we started, when everyone was on a round tube steel bike, uh, to now, and everyone's on a you know an aero tube carbon bike because the the sort of golden aim uh, before you really was to make them lighter, wasn't it? That was the everyone was obsessed about making bikes lighter rather than aero or particularly stiff. Well, it's pretty cool when you show up to the cafe and your bike weighs nothing. I mean, you know, we all, I think all of us that have more than one bike, we still have one of those ones that's super light that you you show off to the at the cafe. But yeah, I mean. Uh, it's not the one that's the fastest, except if you're doing an uphill, uphill time trial or you're a mountaintop finish. Now, Anna, you were actually involved uh, with the company pretty much uh, throughout its history until, until, the, uh, until the selling of it. And when, when you came to write the book, was that, was that an advantage or was it a bit of a, a disadvantage? Did you find it uh, difficult to tell a story that you were so close to? 
No, actually, um, I, I think it was an advantage. Um, it's interesting because I, I have a business background. I'm, I'm not a writer, so it was a bit of a crazy undertaking. But uh, when Phil and Gerard uh, met at university, Phil and I were already together, and I was actually working as a commercial banker. So when Phil told me that they were going to turn their school project into a company, I already knew what to expect. <laughs> so I think that gave me um, uh, 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 well a perspective to be able to help uh, Phil and Gerard, especially in those early years. And um, it allowed me to kind of, you know, look at the story from a business perspective and, and tell the entrepreneurial story. Because it's an it's a aspect of um, the bike industry and, and bike racing as well that we don't often see, we don't often get to hear about. And, and quite what a kind of pressured environment and sometimes how sort of, you know, very close to the edge throughout that whole, the whole history of the, of the company you were. What was it like? I mean, there was clearly a passion involved in, in, in making the bikes and running the company. But what was it like um, for, on a sort of day-to-day basis? There was a lot of pressure. Um, the, the company was always profitable. It was always cash flow that was the problem. But I think, you know, like typical entrepreneurs, Phil and Gerard just said, well, where there's a will, there's a way, and it's going to happen, and we'll make it happen. Um, so the company was always undercapitalized, and I think if it was property, properly capitalized, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, it could have been bigger. Um, perhaps the system's processes could have been a bit better. But um, I think regardless, it was still a pretty successful outcome. And there was a uh, definitely a demand for the product, wasn't there? Right from the very early days, when people people saw the bikes and immediately they yeah. fell in love with them. Yeah, the 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 growth rate was double digits for probably most of the history of uh, of the company. And um, you know, that's one thing that we often talk about is you know what are the challenges of uh, of Cervelo while it was growing. And um, through some discussions, we said. Uh, you know, the, the, the demand was a nice problem to have, but then, you know, we kind of thought, well, in retrospect, maybe it would have made more sense to manage that a bit better and not strive to meet all of the demand and, uh, you know, slow down the growth a little bit so that we had time to catch up because we were always, like, the, the pace internally was just, it was fantastic, like, it was it was astronomical. <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, it, it led to a lot of stress. Um, yeah, and that comes across uh, very much in the book. And, and Phil, you were not, uh, neither you nor, nor Gerard were really businessmen, were you? You were, you were kind of engineers. That's, the, that, that's what your passion was. Yeah, we met, we met in engineering school at McGill. We were both working on our master's. Um, Gerard had come from University of Eindhoven, and I had worked for several years in aerospace um, project management. So I had a pretty good idea of how things should be structured, which was kind of nice to know how it should be done. And then you did it yourself and you go, yeah, I don't have time for that. And you just found another way to make it happen without, you know, and you knew that you weren't doing it right, but there just wasn't the time or the financing to do everything right. So you just kind of, but I think it was helpful to have uh, a business background from, from that standpoint to kind of understand how, how it worked better. But Gerard also had a really good business background as well. He didn't, he hadn't worked, but he had a knack for it. And so it meant the two of us, we were, we read a lot and we were trading ideas and we could fill in for each other when we were, you know, if I was 
sucked over to Taiwan working on a technical problem, Jared could totally fill in the business. And, and the same thing with, uh, with me, which was, I think, one of our strengths is we could backfill each other pretty easily. When you, it, after you sort of intentionally or otherwise disrupted the bike industry, you then kind of set about disrupting pro cycling by launching your own team as a, as a, as a brand. And um, there's a great bit in the book where I think you go to see the owner of a pro tour team, an existing pro tour team, and outline your plans. And he says, uh, and I apologize in advance to anyone who's listening who might be uh, offended by this, but he says, it's the stupidest fucking idea I've ever heard. <laughs> That's a great tagline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's well, almost, it, almost better yeah. than make, making right. Yeah, yeah, well, we picked the wrong title for the book. In brackets. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, in retrospect, did, did he have a point? Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, so some, some of the context behind that was uh, that uh, uh, we, Cervello had just won the, uh, the Tour de France with Carlos Sastra. Um, so from a brand perspective, Cervello and CSC were so aligned together and had such a successful history. And then you win the tour, and then all of a sudden, what do you want to do? You want to start your own team? So that was the context of, uh, <laughs> of the comment. Also, there's just, it's a totally different game running. And we had a big discussion with that. You know, our discussions, plural, for quite a while. is like, you know, is this something that we should be getting into because it's a totally different game? Um, that's a pretty good argument. We shouldn't have, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, we uh, we did feel that there was a huge room for improvement just in the way the teams are run for the benefit of the sponsors. And I mean, you look at what we did on the on the competitive side, and we took uh, a bunch of guys. We didn't have the best team based on the rider stats. We had some great leaders like Carlos and Thor, um, but you know, we went from being you know the non-existent team to be number one in the world in six months on June 1st. So basically today we were the number one team in the world and uh, it didn't last through the tour, but you know, in the early spring classics, we did phenomenally well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we did do something. I think there was something to what we were doing from a sporting side as well as the commercial side. I've got to say, I've spoken to quite a few riders who were in that original team and they will all say, uh, every single one of them, that was the best team I was ever in. You know, in, in, in morale, you know, just the whole the whole group of them together, the whole thing clicked. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that came about, but it was just, um, you know, they all remember it and will all say it was the best. Yeah, and I mean, I think you look at it and you look at the performances they had and they, they believed they could win. As a team, they believed they could win, so they just went out and won. And, uh, and they enjoyed it and they worked really hard as a team. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was fun working with them as well. I mean... In the, when we were a sponsor, CSC and uh, Bjarne were very good at, at involving us. Like, you know, they were, we were the original embedded reporter. Um, you know, we were on the bus and we were living with those guys for, for races. Um, but it was another thing entirely when, when you run your own team and you're sitting there with them all the time. So, yeah, it was, it was a fun time. It was crazy busy. Trying to run a bike company and a race team—that was probably one of the sillier things I've tried to do. Uh, <laughs> but you—you you had right from the very start. You had uh, a women's team as well, didn't you? Which again was unusual in, in pro cycling. What was what was the thinking behind that? Well, I mean, you're selling the 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 market is arguably fifty fifty. I mean, there's roughly the same size. Um, you know, you were selling the same the same bikes. We had involved women in the sizing, and we, we felt that we were doing a much better job of sizing them for 
people because you know a shorter person uh, whether they're a male or a female have more or less the same challenges from a fitting standpoint from a frame fitting standpoint anyways and uh, and we said well why would we you know how do you market to women well you market the same way you do with men and it shows an equal level of respect and so yeah, there was never really any question that's right. Yeah, they were both on, on the same frame, weren't they? The, the yeah. men's and women's team yeah. on the S3s at the end. And it, and it grew out of our women's team, uh, you know, with uh, the team that we had there. And we, several, quite a few of the people we had on the women's team um, split their time between men's and women's or came over to the men's team to support that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was always just part of the program. Why would you do it any other way? Why do you think so few other teams have followed that model? You know, in particular, um, some of the newer ones, some of the bigger ones. There's very few uh, people who've done that. Well, I think that uh, I think that women's cycling should be getting uh, a greater uh, publicity and greater role. I like what uh, the ASO is doing in some of their stuff. But to me, anytime you're setting up, especially your one-day race, if you're setting up for all the TV cameras, all the infrastructure and everything, why don't you have a men's and women's race? And, you know, it's women's racing is not going to become immediately popular unless you give it the the uh, exposure it needs. And so to me, it's like that should just be the way we do things. And, yeah, it's going to take an investment from the industry. But all of us, whether it's media or bike builders or whatever, I mean, we can all grow this uh, this sport together. And to me, it's it's just obvious. And I know Jard was always one of the ones that was uh, pushing that line. So. We never saw any any reason why we shouldn't. We'll carry on the conversation in a second. You're listening to The Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. My name is Rupert Englander. Um, I'm a self-confessed mammal, and uh, I've been a member of Lacquer since probably about January 2018. I just love the model. The fact that the crowd is insuring itself, I, I think, is a, is a really great approach um, it kind of seems to be taking insurance back to the uh, the roots of insurance in terms of the way it was first done all those hundreds of years ago this sort of the thing that really captured me was the fact that if there were no insurance claims in the in the crowd that particular month then you wouldn't actually pay a premium at all worst case scenario you had a full premium payout every month you'd still be in line with the rest of the industry but actually if you consider that in many months there may not be a claim it would end up a lot cheaper and actually, in the first year, I think um, five of my 12 months, I had absolutely no premium whatsoever. You can find full details of Lacquer's very different approach to cycle insurance on the Lacquer website. That's laka.co.uk. And uh, with us, we have uh, Phil White, one of the founders of Cervelo, and Anna DePico, who has written a book uh, to make riders faster about the story of the brand. Um, do you think the, uh, the, the model for pro cycling teams at the moment in particular do you think the model is broken yeah that's a question that always comes up and it's it's a i think it's a pretty complex answer um but certainly the model is it's similar to motor racing in where um except in formula one you know the the promoter owns the venue or you know and you, as a racer you show up with your team and you're not going to get a share of the of the tv revenue you know we're very similar it's very dependent on sponsors and you get these wild swings of uh, you know wealth or 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 lack thereof, um, and we felt that you know definitely in uh, two thousand eight and the and nine when the when the world crashed. I mean there was we had to get sponsors to pay for part of it, and when those people they put their they didn't just kind of say well maybe next year it was like they took that checkbook and they just ripped it up, shredded it, and they weren't going to talk to anyone for uh, for a couple of years. 
so yeah, I think it's it's certainly tougher. Um, I think it, everyone has to kind of work together to figure out uh, a solution for it. I think there needs to be some more stability coming in from the promoters and the people that are actually making the money to come to the teams to stabilize them. Um, but that's my own personal opinion, and I haven't got a solution on how I'm going to convince someone to give up the money they've already made to uh, to give to someone who doesn't have it. So, If you were uh, coming into the bike industry as a sort of new entrant now, what would you do differently? What, what, what would you want to disrupt or change at the moment? I'd just keep running right out the back door. <laughs> <laughs> that's the stupidest fucking idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Oh, there's 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 still a lot to to do from a from an innovation standpoint in, in cycling. I mean, if you look at pro cycling and the high performance side of it, I mean, everyone talks like we've reached peak arrow and and those sort of thing. We haven't reached peak arrow. Uh, there's another whole level of performance to come yet, but it's not going to come easily. Um, it's gonna you know you've got to deal with the stiffness issues and the weight issues. Um, so I think there's another another whole level, and I'm working on on some projects with that. I think from a cycling standpoint, you look at out what's going on there and, and you know, e-bikes are everywhere. Um, they're half the sales volume in, in dollars pretty much everywhere now. Um, they're heading towards half the volume in units in key areas. I think the thing is right now, there's still a little bit of, they're not Franken bikes like they were 10 years ago, um, but making it simple and intuitive and easy to ride. Uh, I think that that's, that's still, there's a challenge there. And, uh, you know, the, the, the accident rate and the injuries are still a little bit higher. Um, but, you know, I think there's technology has a role to solve in uh, or role uh, in improving that whole experience, including solving some of those problems. So I think it'll be a more the bikes will be more intuitive, more integrated and simpler to operate. You won't need to have too many controls and it'll just be like like your phone is an extremely complex piece of technology, but it's simple and intuitive. And that's what we've got to get to in e-bikes as well. And uh, I do see that, um, that coming. And this is not a trick question, but is, is there a role for e-bikes in pro racing, do you think? Well, you're already seeing it in, in mountain bikes. You know, they've got a whole e-bike series now. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's, that's really related to, okay, someone as a promoter has to see that there's, there's a market here and convince people to do it. I think there's a role for, you know, in, high, in high performance road cycling for the manufacturers because it is great to be able to ride with different people of different levels. I was riding with um, uh, the guy that was a vice world champion in, I guess, 55 plus in, uh, in Monaco last year. Uh, and I had an e-bike. I had a little wee, little wee motor. It was invisible. You couldn't see it. And that's the only, I had a great ride. We were out for like four hours. And, you know, like you turn it off when you're on the flats and then, you know, this guy was, he weighed like 120 pounds and, and just ridiculous. He was just super fast. But so I turned it on a little bit when we were on the uphill so I could kind of stay with him. Yeah. It was a really hard ride, yeah. but I had a good ride with the guy. It was the vice world champion. And the other way, it was like, you know, we would have been five minutes out and he would have been psh, gone. So I loved it. I mean, it, you just have to have one of those rides and you get it. And you go, for sure, this is coming. There's no way that um, you would turn it down. I still haven't ridden one. Oh yeah, no, oh. good, They're good. Don't knock it, dude. Try it. But oh, you don't, no, you don't no. need it. You're fit. I wondered, I wondered, <laughs> <Thank you>. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if, if much like uh, Continental are making tires out of dandelions, do you see um, 
a replacement for carbon on the horizon before long? There's, uh, there's biocomposites that have a, have a role, right. um, but there's so many different grades of carbon um, that I can't really see biocomposites replacing all of those. I do see long fiber continuous composites um, having a role in um, things like, you know, city bikes. Um, and that may sound crazy because everyone thinks immediately of like aerospace grade, like the way we're doing things now for, you know, Cervelo does for, for high performance bikes. That's not, that's not how I would make it. But there is technology now they're using in automotive that where they're using continuous carbon fiber. So it's the same stuff we would have effectively used for high performance road racing, but they're combining with thermoplastics and they're making, making a frame or a piece in three minutes. So that's where there's a huge opportunity. So it's a different way to high use volume. it. High volume. Yeah, it's yeah. high volume because yeah. you, can't, you, can't take, you can't make frames for city bikes with the hot, more expensive material and take 45 minutes to make them. Yeah. It's got to be made uh, in three minutes in kind of automotive thing. And there's definitely an opportunity for that. That's coming. I'm working on a couple of projects with that technology. And you're two or three minutes, that's, that's uh, automotive production speeds. And higher performance lower cost that's 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 the holy grail and it exists out there Stuart you're a fan of surveillance aren't you I actually own two at the moment uh, I've got an S3 which I'll be honest it took me a long while to get something to replace that S3 it's my my go-to summer bike because it's quite exciting that bike I had an S2 before it um, I was gutted because I worked for a company that was selling off the S1 frames the original ones, aluminium ones. Yeah. And I didn't, but I didn't get one. They were selling them off for 400 quid. And I was like, no, I don't know. Now I still regret not getting one because that's a cool bike. That was the game changer, right, for you. The S1. Yeah. That was, that was it. Yep. Um, didn't you say to me the other day that there's, um, you'll be able to confirm or deny this, that there's the, the number four yeah. is, is a no-no in the company of Alan, no? Yeah, yeah. it's cursed. Well, why, is, why, is, yeah. why, yeah. why is that then? P4 story. Yeah, P, P, yeah P4. There was well, an S4, wasn't there? Isn't it unlucky there, in the there, Far there East? There was an S4. <laughs> because there was a P4, there was never an S4. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah because then it, cause it went, yeah, P3, this. S, uh, yeah, so, so the P4, and the P4 was the one that had... I just, it was just it was cursed, and the, the Japanese or the Japanese the uh, the Asians told us, "Oh, you can't do a four. You can't." I said, nah, "That's that's an old wives' tale. That's just superstition. We're going to do a four. It's the next logical step. We shouldn't have done a four. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe things would have been different, but yeah, it was a it was a kind of confluence of the worst of times, and um, the world is changing on bikes, and and the wheel makers decided to make all the wheels really wide, um, just as we brought out this new bike, and no one knew about it. And so it was all, you know, we were the, probably the largest uh, company that was making uh, bikes for, uh, for time trial or deep dish carbon wheels. And um, so everyone brought out these really wide wheels that then just barely fit between the frame or didn't fit. And then uh, it was just really bad coordination between the industry. If we'd known that, we would have made more space. And if they'd known that, they could have sold more wheels. But then it was also cursed because the, the P4, there was a change in the production uh, in in uh, in China, and they started breaking. So we got this uh, wheels that didn't fit, and brakes that were designed for narrower wheels, so they didn't really work so well. And then the frame breaks. It's like 
if there could have been anything else to go wrong, it like anything that could go wrong did go wrong with that bike. So any future projects you do, the, the number four is just that's yes, yeah, yeah. just forget it, <laughs> yeah. just skip straight past that one. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no S two, three, five. That's it. Yeah. Was there something to do with the, the the integrated bottle as well around the bottom yeah. bracket that was made oh, yeah, the, U, UCI was oh, yeah. illegal? Yeah, we uh, Jordan and I we looked very carefully at the rules because we had this. We'd been looking to figure yeah. out how to you know integrate the water and the hydration and uh, and also your uh, your your nutrition. Yeah. And uh, so we tried a whole bunch of things, and the one that worked the best was that area at the bottom bracket. So we said, oh, let's just fill it up with a water bottle. And uh, there was nothing. The word bidon or bottle or water didn't show up in the rules at all. So clearly, it's there's no rules on it. So we'll just put it there. And, uh, yeah, the UCI saw that, and they flipped, and they said, uh, it's banned. We said, there's no rule. Uh, there is now. It's banned. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, was, I always thought it was kind of a badge of honor. It was, like, banned by the UCI. Absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, never had those shirts made up, banned by the UCI. Too yeah. fast for the UCI. Yeah, too fast for the UCI. Have you, have you fallen foul of any other UCI arbitrary rulings along the way? Well, I noticed like now there's there's at least three point. or four, because we were also trying to work with them after that. We said we should probably take a, a more... Um, more a, complementary and uh con- you know conservative and a, an approach that was the co- we started this gosem which is an industry group uh with fsa to try and get the industry and the uci working together so we would have clear and consistent rules that were equally applied to everyone worldwide and uh, it was a bit of a stretch and that eventually morphed into the world federation of sporting goods industries i'm sure you're you're Readers aren't actually that interested in this. But anyways, there's now a, a group that's coordinated by the WFSGI that works with the governing body and the manufacturers to make sure that we don't have any of these these problems anymore. And that was a big that was a big thing to, to try and go there. But yeah, there was I looked through the rules now and I noticed that yeah, that was set up for that. That was banned for that. That was that's to harness that. So there's there's quite a few rules and uh, rulings that are related to things that we were doing. Phil White and uh, Anna DePico, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks to Stuart Clapp. Thanks to uh, Ian Cleverly. And um, that's it from this podcast. We'll be back later in June. Um, there might be something to talk about. We might even talk about the Tour de France, I suppose. Well, I might do. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.